0: You guys ready this morning to jump into the the Word, to the Bible? You can turn to Mark chapter 8. And before we start reading from the text today, Mark is the second book of the New Testament. I want to share just a quick story about a company, a business. In 1888, one of the most prolific businesses in American history, was birthed. The founder of this company was, by, was named George Eastman. You may or may not know where I'm going with this, but he founded a company that went on to be, at the time, basically the Apple.com of the 20th century, so to speak. And from 1888 all the way into the late 1900s, Kodak was one of the most successful companies in American history. I rummaged through my drawers, and I found this bit of antiquity for you today. I, it doesn't even have like the, the wrapper on it anymore. Remember, you'd go to Walgreens or Walmart, and you could buy a pack of disposable cameras. Well, before they were disposable, this was a Kodak, by the way. You had Kodak, Polaroid, and I think Fuji, if I remember right. Those are the three big players. Well, before that... Early 1900s, you have Kodak, and they made billions, and they made it on selling chemicals for developing film, film itself, and, surprise, cameras. And this company, all the way into the 80s, mind you, had 90% market share in the film business. Now, if you know anything about business, that is extraordinary. 90% of the market on film and 85% of the market on cameras sold. They had this puppy on lockdown, okay? Kodak. And with all of their success and all of their financial gain, and all of their ingenu- in what's the word? Thank you. Just left me. They filed bankruptcy in 2012. It's an interesting story, isn't it? How does a company that is at the top of their game, absolutely crushing it, The biggest there is, the most successful in the industry there is. How does the apple of the world lose all of its fortune, lose all of its people, lose all of its clients, so to speak? How does Kodak stop being Kodak? 2012 filed for bankruptcy. Why? If you're sitting here, you're probably thinking to yourself, when, when cameras moved digital, that Kodak somehow lost its mojo and they went down the tubes, but you'd be wrong. Because they had a 10 year plan with some of the smartest people in the commerce world to integrate them from that kind of camera and that kind of film to a completely digital scenario. How then did they lose the company that was on top of the world making billions of dollars? You're desperate to know, aren't you? Exactly. Tell us, please. So Kodak, when, when, after they filed bankruptcy and all of the, the business scientists, the surgeons came in and began to dissect what was going on behind closed walls in Kodak, they found something really, truly interesting. And it's that the employees and the CEOs believed that they were in the, the film-selling business But do you remember the slogan that Kodak had? Does anybody remember what it was? It was popular in the 70s and 80s in particular. It was a capture the Kodak moment. You guys remember that? Raise your hand for just for a second. I want to make sure I'm not... Okay, you do remember the Kodak moment and somehow the drift of thinking that they're in the film business began to take precedent over the the fact and reality that people didn't care about film, they cared about capturing memories. And because they treated their company like a film business, they began to lose out on the fact that people didn't care about film, they cared about capturing the memory and they would use whatever tool they had to do so. And so as people increasingly went digital, and as Kodak had 85% market share, even in the digital camera world, they still bent all of their progress towards you printing your pictures. That's it. That is their single mistake, is they wanted you to print your photos. And as the younger generation is growing up, guess what you guys don't like to do? (laughs) You don't print pictures at all. Most people that I know, including my age, are completely happy posting their pictures to a social media site and them living there for the rest of eternity. And because Kodak invested all its money over here, Steal into this idea of capture them digitally, but we want you to print them. They lost it all. They forgot what business they were actually in. It's an interesting story. And so talking to the employees and talking to the business professionals, guess what? Their mission started to get fuzzy. It started to get blurry. It got out of focus as to what they were doing and why they were doing it. Have you ever felt that way about your own life? Of course you have. Has life ever felt blurred to you? Where you just aren't, things aren't clear. They're not crystal anymore. You're not understanding why things are happening or why you're doing it. How many of you ever felt, you don't have to raise your hand here for a second, but you felt the blurred lines of going to a job that you don't really want to go to, but you need to because you got to make money. And you begin to ask yourself, what am I doing? Why am I doing this every day? Or maybe you go to a job and you actually like it, but you're not even mildly paid what you believe that you're worth for that job. Everybody in here was like, Amen. I'm not paid what I deserve. And so you feel this tension where things just start to get out of focus and they start to get blurry. And guess what? You can experience blurred lines in your marriage. Can you not? Where you and your spouse are like two ships passing in the night and everybody's busy and everybody's working jobs and somebody's working nights and somebody's working mornings and you just, all of a sudden, while you're doing what you're doing, you lose sight of the focus the, the, the importance of what you're doing and what you're trying to build. You start getting sharp. You start getting angry. You start getting snippy. I know no one has ever felt that way in this room. Your parenting, I mean, good grief. How easy is it to lose sight of how and why you're parenting? your kids come home, they're doing their homework, you start getting sharp, everybody's tired, and you just, you get, the, you get the, the cranky parent vibe, where it feels like everything that you're doing just feels like a lecture. And then you go, you, you go up to your room, and you lay in bed, and you look at your spouse, and you just, you just vent. I'm not doing a good job as a mom or a dad. And guess what happens? The lines are getting Blurred. We understand this, do we not? We know what it's like to live out of focus. And this morning, what we're going to do in the series that we call Living Color, where the blurred lines begin to blend the color and everything loses its sharpness, its focus. We're going to read a story in Mark chapter 8 of someone who literally was living life out of focus. And Jesus does what only Jesus can do. He brings this guy to a life in living color. Restores something to him. You guys ready? Mark chapter 8. Let's do this. Uh, Mark chapter 8, 22 through 26. Jesus and his disciples, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by that hand, and he led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I I see people. They look like trees walking around. So once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, Don't go into the village. Now, don't get hung up on the fact that Jesus just spit in a dude's eyes. I'd like to give you some great theological reasoning behind this, but I don't have one. Jesus, in this instance, was like, I'm going to spit in your face, and I'm going to use that to heal you. So deal with it, bro. And he does. Super gross, right? Super gross. If you sit in the front row, sometimes you get spit on by me. That is the reality of it. And maybe, maybe your sight will be restored. Just don't know. We've got something in the book of Mark. It's the only instance in all of Scripture where we see someone partially healed. That should cause us to stop for a minute. It's the only moment where someone is healed, but they're not fully healed. Jesus literally puts some spit on his face, lays his hands on this man's eyes, and he says, do you see anything? And the guy says, well... I guess. I mean, it's better than it was. And I'm looking around, Jesus, and I, it looks like trees are walking around. What do we see here? We see a man who can see but is not fully seeing. It's as if he's living and seeing with a life out of focus. Interesting. We also see something very interesting about this man that's healed. Because of every single blind person that's healed in the scripture, he's the only one who is doing absolutely nothing. He's blind, he's in the village of Bethsaida, Jesus is coming through the town and this gentleman doesn't cry out, he doesn't fall on his knees, he doesn't ask, he doesn't sing, he doesn't shout, he doesn't whisper. He says, absolutely nothing. And some people in the city grab this man and bring him to Jesus. And before you hail these people as heroes, they're not. They're looking for the magic show. We know some things about this city of Bethsaida, and so Jesus does what a kind and good and gracious Savior does, is he takes this man by the hand, and he walks him outside the village and ministers to him in a way that this man needed, that would bring this man to true faith. That's the kind of good, loving, gracious Savior that we serve. Jesus knows exactly what you need, and he knows how you need it. So we have this odd moment. Have you ever been able to see without really seeing? I have. Let me tell you something. I went to Costco recently, and I have contacts, if you're wondering. And, you know, I have glasses. I've got contacts. Without them, I'm blind. I mean, just... It's, it's pitiful is what it is. And my eye exam had, had, had come up. You know, I had, to, I had to do the tedious work of sitting through another exam because it had been like two or three years. And so they had some new tests that they wanted to run on my eyes. I said, okay. They said, after we run it, it's going to take you a couple minutes for just your eyes to kind of feel normal again. Okay, they said, you can walk around the store, you know it's Costco, there's plenty to look at, there's free samples. You know, so I'm like, okay, no, no big deal. So they do this test. I didn't fully understand what was getting ready to happen because my eyes, the point of it was to prevent your eyes from dilating. So after this test, your eyes, Or literally just like this. And your pupils will not shrink or dilate or do anything. And so the minute you're done, you just have literally buckets of water pouring out of your eyes. I could not see anything. It was completely blurry. And they're like, just walk around the store. And I'm like, you know, just, just bumbling around. I literally just find my way to my car in the parking lot. And I'm sitting there, and I can't drive home. I passed the test with flying colors. My vision was great, but I could not get my eyes to shrink to their normal size or my pupils to dilate properly. And I I mean, water was coming out of my eyes like a fire hose. And I can only imagine what the person who parked next to me was thinking or the person who walked by me in Costco. I literally have just water pouring out of my eyes. And, you know, I'm stumbling to my car. It probably looked like I had just received the worst news of my life. True story. And I am not exaggerating any of it. I sat in my car for 30 minutes <laughs> because I could not see Jack. But you know what I could? I still could see I could see enough. It wasn't like I had just black blindness. I could see, but yet I wasn't really able to see. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? What if I told you that we live in a culture where there are a lot of people, maybe even in this room where we have a measure of vision and we can see a little bit, we can see in part, but we aren't truly seeing Jesus for who he is. Things still look a little bit blurry. And do we think that Jesus just maybe didn't have his juice going? Maybe he didn't have his smoothie. Maybe he didn't get enough spinach in that thing. He prayed, and it just didn't work right. Oh, man. I don't know what happened. Let me pray again. Let me, let me talk to God one more time. Bro, I'm sorry. I don't really know what happened. Let me, let me put my hands on you, and let's chew this one more time. Because that's the natural instinct that we have when we read of the scriptures. is Jesus, did something go wrong here? Why on earth did you do this? Or is it possible that Jesus is trying to tell a story in the manner and in the way he heals this man that just might bring a little bit of clarity to the disciples who were watching and those thousands of years later who might read and see. What Jesus is doing. You see, just before Jesus entered the city of Bethsaida, he was with his disciples. And the disciples were were grumbling and whining, and and Jesus is getting a little bit frustrated with them. There are two miracles that have just happened before Bethsaida. The feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. Let me say that one more time. Jesus fed 5,000 people. If you're new to church... I'm going to paraphrase the story. There's a lot of people who've come to see Jesus speak and they're hungry. Some of them have gone days without food. And Jesus says to the disciples, why don't you feed these guys? And they look stunned. Well, what are we supposed to do? Jesus, come on. And so he says, well, you know, there's a boy and he has a couple loaves of bread and he has a few fish. Jesus says, man, that's all I need. And he performs one of the most wondrous miracles in the New Testament, where over 5,000 people are fed. And an interesting thing is a a little note that if you're not Jewish, you may not grasp and you may not understand, is that that a couple loaves of bread and a few pieces of fish, and they feed 5,000 people, and they do so, and they have 12 baskets left over. And then Jesus runs into the same situation, but these aren't Jewish people he's ministering to this time. It's Gentile people that he's ministering to. It's in a, a, a primarily Gentile area of this region. And it's 4,000 people. And they do the same. They get a couple pieces of bread, a couple people pieces of fish. The disciples are panicking, and Jesus says, I got this, man. And he does what only he can do, he performs a miracle. And how many baskets are left over this time? Seven. You may not track with me yet, but just bear with me. Mark eight seventeen through 21. This has just happened. Both these miracles have just taken place. And now the disciples are walking into Bethsaida with Jesus. And he says, guys, do you still not see? Do you still not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? And ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 12. They replied, and when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? And you're sitting here, and you might be thinking, I, I don't understand. <laughs> so if you're Jewish at this moment, or if you're Gentile at this moment, it doesn't matter because the only people who would have been privy, truly privy to the amount of baskets left over would have been Who? the disciples. And so Jesus is with the Jewish people, and he, he, he has 12 baskets left over, which represents to them the 12 tribes of Judah. And then he's with the Gentile crowd, with the same group of disciples, and he has seven baskets left over. Which, if you aren't aware, when Jesus or when God was instructing Joshua to lead Israel into the promised land, he said there will be seven Gentile nations. And so Jesus, in one moment and in one breath, is taking, he's saying, I am the God of, the, of, the, of Israel, and I am also the God of the Gentile." In other words, there is nothing beyond my scope. There is nothing beyond my reach. I am the king. Do you not fully understand? Do you have eyes to see, but you're not seeing, and ears to hear, but you're not hearing? Why are you anxious? Why are you stressed? Why are you struggling so much? What are you worried about? Did I not do this right here? And did I not do this right here? Does that not speak to you that there is nothing that I cannot do? Do you understand? I want you to hear this this morning, that Jesus is the king of everything. Everything. Or, Jesus is the king of nothing. You see, when it comes to Jesus, Jesus never was satisfied with simply being. He was never just called a good teacher. He always moved people into a greater place of faith, a greater place of being able to believe, a greater place of trusting him. He wasn't just a good instructor or somebody who could give you great advice on your stock portfolio. No, 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 no. He was king, and he was instructing them and teaching them that he is king of everything. And because he's king of everything, you have nothing to worry about anything. And so Jesus steps into Bethsaida. Matthew eleven twenty one 21 says, Woe to you, Bethsaida, if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. That's the kind of city Bethsaida is. And Jesus steps into it. And these jokers bring this guy up and they want Jesus to perform his Jesus juice magic and do this amazing thing because people were always looking for some signs and wonders, were they not? And Jesus takes this man and he walks him outside the village. And not only does he restore his sight, he gives the disciples a picture of their own life. See, they were seeing but not really seeing. Disciples, do you not understand? And Jesus healed this man, and it was like he was seeing trees walking around. And that is a picture, a story of the disciples in that very moment. If you're like me, sometimes you struggle with this, do you not? You see, but you don't see. You hear, but you don't hear. You tracking with me? I, I have put my faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. I believe that there is enough evidence to, to support that claim that Jesus is the Son of the living God. I believe that this Bible is translated with enough credibility and enough authority and was done in such a painstaking manner that even non-Christian historians will say that it is the single most accurate book of antiquity that we have in existence. I know all those things are true. I believe the claims about Jesus are true. I believe that he is the king of everything, and yet I still find myself... Worrying. I find myself anxious. I find myself struggling to prove myself. Grasping for my own. God, I need to make more money. God, I'm not making enough money. Why isn't this doing this? Why aren't my children doing this? Why isn't this happening? God... (gasps) Do you not understand, Andy? Do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? Are you seeing right now, but not really seeing right now? Or do you truly see me for who I am? Because if you do, I will be the anchor to your soul. And when the winds come, you will not drift. And when the storms come, the foundation will hold its own. Do you see? See, in Mark chapter 8, we see this tremendous moment. Because this man is healed. And there's, by the way, there's a lot we can teach still about this guy footnote this is a freebie for you jesus leads this man out of this village does he not and then he says something to him his final words to him aren't like hey go get some scrolls and read the old testament he doesn't say hey go be go get go get in a synagogue right now hey uh all those things are good (laughs) He doesn't even say start praying right now. He gives him no instruction except one thing, and that one thing is this. Do not go back to that village. Go to your home. And I want you to hear this. Spiritual blindness, it is not caused by other people in your life. That can only be caused by the sin in your own heart. But I will tell you this. Spiritual blindness grows or dies based on the company you keep and this village was a village filled with people who had no faith we know this from the record of this city Jesus wouldn't even do miracles there and he looks at this man and he says don't go back there And I want you to hear me this morning. There are moments when your eyes are open to the reality of who Jesus is. There are moments where you have breakthrough, where you finally see him for who he truly is. And I want you to hear Jesus is also saying to you and I, don't go back to the way you were. Don't go back there. Don't walk back into it. There might be temptation that has has caused blindness in your eyes. Sin, relationships. Let me camp out on that for a second. I am all for winning and preaching and having relationship with people who do not know Jesus. Jesus was known as being a friend of sinners. And you know what? Church, more often than not, we need to grow in that area. That's a fact. But you also know what it's like when you have relationships and that relationship goes beyond someone that you're praying for and beyond someone that you're trying to reach out to. It, it Actually, that relationship becomes an anchor. Rather than Jesus being the anchor of your soul, you have a relationship that is, that is the anchor that's tying and tethering you down. And it's preventing you from healthy relationship with God. It happens all the time. I'm not suggesting that you stop praying. I'm not suggesting that you stop having a friendship. But I am saying that sometimes something does need to change in the makeup of a relationship to prevent it from darkening the doorway of your soul. It happens. You're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, well, I'm not a Christian yet. Are you saying that I'm an anchor to someone No, I'm not saying that. Everybody has had a cancerous relationship before. And there are times where you need to leave. And you need to be able to say, I'm leaving this village and I'm not going back. Come with me or don't. But I'm not walking back into that. That was free. I'm going to close with this. Because this whole story, Jesus, you have to love it because Jesus performs an extraordinary miracle. There's a man whose eyes are restored and he can see. And yet, the the, the larger picture of the story is about Jesus helping his disciples see. And in the beginning, before they even get to Bethsaida, they're grumbling and talking, and Jesus is getting a little bit frustrated. Do you not understand? Do you not see? And he shows them a picture of, of people walking around that are blurry, and that's them. They aren't, this is how they see Jesus. And then they leave this city after this miracle has taken place. Verse 27 and 29, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asks them, he says, who do people say that I am? They replied, some some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, one of the prophets. You see the picture that's happening here? Because out of their mouth, they're seeing, but not really seeing. It's like trees that are walking around but are still blurry. Hey, who do people say that I am? Oh, you're this. Oh, you're that. Oh, you're this and you're that. And then Jesus does something. He says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you, Jesus, are the Christ. And Jesus looks at him and he says, thanks be to God because... He's the only one who could have revealed that to you, meaning you finally got it. See, the word Christ means anointed one. The only one who was ever to be anointed was the one who was to be king. And so Peter, with all of his follies and sometimes all of his pride, in this moment we see God using him in extraordinary ways. The disciples aren't seeing with great clarity, and Jesus gives them a miracle. He heals a man, and yet he uses it also to show them a mirror of what their own life looks like. You don't see me for who I really am. And then they step on outside the city, and he asks them again, who do people say that I am? Well, you're this, you're that. You're this, and you're that. Okay, great. Who do you say that I am? I want to bring this all into crystal clear focus for you, disciples. Who do you say that I am? Peter, with the light bulb, goes on in his soul. Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior. Jesus, wherever you're going, I'm going. Jesus, I'm seeing you. I see you for who you truly are, for who you really are. And it doesn't matter whether you grew up in church or whether this is your first time, or maybe it's your first time coming back to it in a long time. The question is still the same. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus? Is he the good and kind, gracious Lord and Savior who is able to take you and I outside of our situations and out of our circumstances and bring us to full sight? Is that the king that we serve? I think that it is. Is he the king over everything in your life? Your marriage, your parenting, your income, your job, your house, your old house, your new house, your desire to move, your lack of friends, your ton of friends, your lack of marriage, your marriage. Is he the king of everything? Because that's who he is. He's the anointed one. Christ. He's the son of the living God. And he and he alone has the ability to heal your eyes so that you can truly see. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the accounts of of his miraculous power in the scriptures. We thank you for the example of kindness and goodness and grace. We thank you that Jesus is, in fact, your son who died for our sin, who took the punishment for our sin, that we might truly and fully know you as our heavenly Father. And Lord, we confess that there are times where our eyes are seeing fuzzy, where things seem blurry, where the picture is not looking clear. Sometimes it's situations in our lives, it's choices that we've made. It's, it's just the scenarios we find ourselves in and we find our eyes drifting. We find the situation looking blurry. And Lord, we're asking even this morning that you would forgive us today. in the midst of stress we give it to you everyone stand to your feet this morning would you do that sometimes there are moments where where we have you know people raise their hand or they respond or maybe they come down forward we, we don't need to do that this morning just feel feel led in this moment for us to just stand together because if there's anything i know there's very few people that are, that are never impacted by stress, worry, anxiety, fear. And yet Jesus is the king over all of it. And so if you're comfortable, just turn your hands like this. It's a, it's a, it's a means of supplication, of surrender to God. If you're not comfortable with that, you don't have to do that this morning. But Jesus, right now, we surrender our lives and hearts to you afresh. Where we have not been trusting you, we stop right now and we put our trust and faith in you. You are the king of our life. You are the savior of our heart and soul. We thank you that you know the intimate details of our life, the affairs of our situations. We turn to you as our one true king. We put our faith in you as our one true king. Our one true savior. And we rejoice today that we can see and truly see you for who you are, Jesus. You are Christ, the anointed one, the risen Lord, the savior of our souls. And we give you praise today and worship you.